you are listening to Comes a Time with O'Teal Burbridge and Mike Fenoya. If you're digging the podcast, do these guys a favor and review and subscribe. It means a lot. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're joining for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. And now, here's Mike and O'Teal. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time Podcast. That's O'Teal. And that is Mike. We had a really good one this week. Uh, Mr. Kirk West, who uh, I met when I first joined the Allman Brothers. He was, they called him the tour mystic. <laughs> he did like the guest list and a lot of different things you could really like define what his job was but he was also the band photographer for many years mm. and uh shot all the pictures that were ever shot since i joined including such first, beautiful stuff man. yeah the first shot the first band pictures i ever took with them so for me he's like the jay blakesburg of the allman brothers band and has so many stories i mean he saw the original band with Dwayne and barry a bunch of times way yeah. back when and uh he also built the almond brothers museum uh in macon georgia which i think is really incredible this we were talking about in the podcast there's a lot of musicians that don't have their own museum like yeah. miles davis or john coltrane or duke ellington i mean we could go on and on people that have changed american history and uh it, it happened kind of organically in the beginning because he's just like has the collector gene. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was yeah. like, hey, I got enough stuff to like have an actual museum if I corral it all together, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's a it's really great fun and, and fun for me because I learned things that I didn't know. You could be on the road with somebody for years yeah. and not know a lot of stuff because you're just kind of in the moment and uh dealing with whatever you're dealing with at the time and so it was really fun for me even yeah though I've known I, it for a really long time you could tell right away how i mean genuine and like heartfelt he is you know throughout the entire conversation and uh you know prior to having him on i went and looked up a whole bunch of stuff that he did almonds and otherwise and like oh yeah some of the shots he's done are just out of this world you know and he explains and i like that we got into it where he kind of talks about you know how he preferred to shoot bands that he didn't like and uh some of the other cool <laughs> little snippets that he gave but uh yeah this is a dude that was game you could tell like he's someone who you know all the way going back to like maybe our second or third episode when we talked with mountain girl about like people that are game, you know, like that, that's what makes this world so interesting. And, you know, Kirk's definitely one of them. So it was really awesome having him on. And I think we barely scratched the surface, right? We didn't even get into like oh. the Detroit blues stuff or anything. So dude, like he had to hold because he spent all that time in Chicago, South side Chicago. Um, and going through those photos of his, he just had he was there at the time all the money yeah. all the like everything it's he so played, great the stuff that he did yeah he it was really cool and then all the country stuff he has my favorite shot of tom waits that i've ever seen there's yeah. like all this other stuff but he really uh if you get to if you get a chance if you're ever in macon georgia 
or if you're ever in Atlanta, mm. drive down there. It's not that far. Check it out. Go see the Almond Brothers Museum. And, yeah, uh, for it sure. It's like spurred other things now. Mm. I think he said Little Richard's got one going now and Otis Redding and some of the other About time. places that were integral to um, the Almond Brothers story, like Capricorn Studios, yeah. H&H Kitchen, yeah. where that old black lady, Mama Louise, yeah. fed them when they That's didn't right. have no money. And all yeah. she required was that they didn't come in all messed up on drugs. One time yeah. someone did, and she made them sit out back. I was like, how's that? The old black lady making the white dude sit out back and making Georgia eat. Because <laughs> he, he was too high. She was, but she still fed him. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, hey, this woman's you know? good as gold, man. So Hell it's yeah. it just man. good stuff. Uh, you guys will oh, really so enjoy cool. that one. <laughs> thank you, Kirk, for joining us. What a fun time. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, we're here on Pantheon's Podcast Network. And we have a lot of great stuff going on for you. So like, share, subscribe, join our YouTube channel, uh, join our individual YouTube channels. I have my special Don't Let Me Down on mine. Oteil sharing amazing tracks from Lovely View of Heaven on his. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod. All the places. Join us, like us. You know the routine, folks. Get we got merch. merch. We got cups. We got t-shirts. We got koozies. We got hats. fun things. Hats. Come on. Whatever you want. Come get Yeah. It. Thank you. Enjoy. And take care. Peace. Yeah, we just start going, man. <laughs> okay. But, but it is good to see you, man. How are you feeling today? How's the weather there today? Oh, it's lovely. It's a lovely fall day in Macon, Georgia. Um, it'll be uh, about 80 degrees, and it was 50 degrees when I got up this morning, and everything's lovely, you know? Um, I love it. I'm happy to be here. Man, we're happy we're to have to. you. For sure. I... um. We had Jay Blakesburg on a while back, and we got so many, as you can imagine, crazy stories. And uh, I said, man, I know someone <laughs> that's got just as crazy. I got a story or two. You oh, yeah. I mean, some we can't even tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're still in a, yeah, I'm, a, I'm in a, an adult mode right now. I'm not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I want to know is how did you first meet the Almond Brothers? Because I know we have to do, I want to do a part like Chicago blues, mm -hmm. part the country thing, you know, all of it. But I know the yeah. Almond Brothers was your, how did you first meet them? Well, um, you know, I was a fanboy from the beginning. Um, I saw the brothers play about a dozen times before Dwayne was killed. And uh, wow. but back then I wasn't actually a photographer. I was just a hippie with a camera. And uh, and I learned pretty early that if I was going to take uh, good pictures, I couldn't be very high. And uh, <laughs> and I wanted to be just as high as I could be to see the Almond <laughs> Brothers. And so I never took a picture. I never took a camera to an Almond Brothers show. I have 
um, unbelievable pictures of Country Joe and the Fish and Pacific Gas and Electric, but who gives a shit, right? Um, <laughs> and so um, then Dwayne died. I was in I was in serious long term uh, drug rehab uh, in October of seventy one. I was uh, and I heard Dwayne died. And then uh, I was still in there when Barry died. It was long term wow. and I was a big mess. Um, but wow. I got out and uh, I hadn't really known him. You know, I mean, the rules were much different. Uh, backstage access, uh, you know, they played a lot of places that didn't have that kind of thing. So I was in the general vicinity, but I didn't know Dwayne or Barry, never really met him. Um, uh, but, you know, so 73 came around. I got out of rehab. And uh, I hightailed it to San Francisco. Um, I had been floating around quite a bit. I had grown up in a little town in Iowa and moved to Chicago right out of high school. And uh, uh, because that's where the blues was. I, I had been, my eyes had been totally open and my ears were like, I, I, I got into the Paul Butterfield blues band uh, ah. while I was still in high school. And uh, I didn't know shit about the blues in Iowa. I mean, I was a country boy. And uh, so I knew all about the Everly Brothers and Johnny Horton. Uh, but I didn't know much about, you know, Hound Dog Taylor. So um, I get to Chicago and I jump in with both feet and uh, started to point cameras at musicians. Um, and, and I learned and... Uh, you know, I saw the brothers the first time uh, in February of uh, 1970 at a little club in Chicago. Uh, it was uh, in the Rush Street Entertainment District. It was a place called Beavers. And it was downstairs in a low ceiling, and, and they were loud as hell. And uh, me and a couple of buddies of mine, we had fake IDs because it was a 21 drinking uh, age, and we were 18, 19 years old. So we would go in and try to hustle chicks, you know, um, but the brothers, these guys, we didn't know who they were and they were so loud. They looked like us, but you couldn't really talk because it was so loud. And uh, so we split and then about three or four weeks later, some reasonably short time, I was at a friend's house uh, and back then uh, everybody put their uh, albums leaned up against the baseboard, you know, then just on the floor next to the stereo and so there'd be these whole stacks of uh albums uh, laid up against the wall and uh there was that album there was those boys that we saw the Allman brothers that put it on and that record just changed my life and i went out yeah. the next day and bought two copies one i left home and one i took everywhere i went <laughs> and uh then by that was in february 1970 and in that whole summer of 1970 um I spent a, a, the whole summer selling drugs at rock festivals and uh, we got in a car, three of us got in a car and drove to Atlanta or to Macon. Um, and we're at Atlanta pop fest in 1970. And that's where I really got hooked. Um, I saw the brothers two or three times that weekend and uh, um, then came back and. Uh, Can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Sure. <clears throat> Did you see the Colonel at that festival? Did you see Colonel Bruce? <laughs> no, uh, not that I recall. They, uh, uh, you know, it was huge and floating around. And I was, you know, yeah. tripping and shit. And uh, I don't really know. <laughs> I actually have a tape of the Hampton Grease Band from that performance. That That's uh, remarkable. It's like, 
they do Wolverton Mountain and all kinds of crazy shit, you know. Um, but yeah, when I was working on uh, that uh, uh, Atlanta pop record project that we put out, uh, I also dug into uh, a lot of the audio of the festival itself. And uh, yeah. the guy that had it gave me, uh, I got the uh, tapes of both brothers set on the main stage and then the Hampton Grease Band he gave me. So nice. uh, I ended up giving that to Bruce. He said, uh, yeah, that's hell. That's, that was horrible. <laughs> okay, <dude. laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> so. That's great. So, so how anyway, you, you know, yeah, how go you, ahead. How did you end up meeting them, meeting them? Like, well, uh, after they broke up, because, you know, by the time I started seeing them again in 73, they were like, you know, getting to be the biggest band in the country. And yeah. uh, so the access was pretty raggedy. You know, I shot them a couple, yeah. three times, but I just bought tickets and went to the show and took pictures. And uh, so after they broke up in 76, <laughs> I had uh, established myself in Chicago. I had sobered up, moved back to Chicago and uh, uh, started shooting pictures for money. You know, I had a, a little crew of guys that invited me to join them. It was an outfit out of Chicago called Photo Reserve. And uh, so we were shooting everything in town, you know, big shows, blues shows. I was the only guy that ca cared about country music. So I saw all the country shows. Huh. Um, but, but at that time, you know, they were all they, they fractured and they were playing little places. Butch had a band called Trucks and they played a club in the suburbs of Chicago. And I got, you know, I mean, it's easy access. There we are here. How you doing, yeah. Butch? Um, yeah. And uh, Dickie did the same kind of thing. Now, in before I moved back to Chicago, um, I had started shooting pictures of musicians with some serious intent. And uh, I shot one of the very first Dickie Betts and Great Southern shows. Um, I was I got sober again in West Palm Beach, and he was down there working all over the East Coast of Florida. And uh, so I shot him several times, and 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 got to meet them and we weren't friendly yet but it was a hey how you doing here's some nice pictures yeah. of you and yeah. and i'd always learned that if you give pictures to people that you uh have already photographed that you know it makes them feel good about themselves and uh um i lost the light here okay um and uh so when i got back to chicago i met a few um greg was still laying real low but i got to know dickie and butch and jamo and uh, then when they and, and along that time, I was really doing a lot of record company work. And so I reached out to Capricorn down here in Macon and, and ended up shooting a lot of uh, publicity stuff and stuff around Chicago for Capricorn, the Dixie Dregs oh. and Sea Level and things like that. Yeah. And, and so when uh, in 79, when the brothers hit it on tour again, I was locked in with Capricorn and I got, you know, good photo passes and tour access and stuff like that. And so it was during that period of time, um, the spring of 79 is really when I nailed down my relationship with them. They had played a couple nights at the Uptown Theater in Chicago. And uh, uh, after the show, um dickie said uh let's let's go uh, let's go out let's go see some blues so i took him over to the kingston mines where my friend junior wells was playing and they all sat in with junior you know uh, 
Dickie and Greg and Jim Essery, who was playing harmonica with them that tour. Um, and, uh, you know, I got great shots of them playing with Junior and uh, Phil Guy and that whole, uh, yeah. the whole uh, Chicago blues thing. And then the next night, Dickie wanted to go see some country music. So I took him to a little uh, uh, uptown uh, honky-tonk called Mr. Kylie's. And uh, there was kind of a Western swing band playing, and and oh, uh, Greg nice. went this time. So there's, you know, they played all kinds of stuff. So it was as a result of those that weekend, and then I'm jumping on the bus and going to Michigan or going to Indiana with them, stuff like that. And yeah. uh, so '79 and '80, I really nailed down the relationship, and uh, uh, you know, started getting Christmas cards, and you know, I was working as a promotional guy for a, a custom cowboy hat company called Charlie One Horse. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and they were great hats. They were, you know, back, they were hats that cost you four or $500 in 1980, you know, which was a Whoa, lot of money. Yeah. Wow. On your That's head. A lot. Bet it came with a nice hat so, box. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, I'd, I'd have the, I, I knew, you know, I put hats on the Oak Ridge boys and Vinky Gilly and, you know, all kinds of shit like that. I, love so it. I, I had custom hats made for Dickie and Greg and Butch. And, you know, Butch's Butch's at that time, his uh, um, his hotel alias was Hamilton Burger. Um, <laughs> you know, he's very esoteric, Butch was. And uh, so I made him a hat with a little hamburger on the front of it. You know, <laughs> he nice. loved it. You know, so. Anyway, um, it was during that period of time that I that I really tightened everything down, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and then they broke up again in 82. And that's when I really made my move to really get it. And because I was going to do a, a, a coffee table book of their photography oh. uh, and, and I hadn't shot them before 73. So I was I, I said, Red Dog, you got pictures. And so I was just searching pictures for this book. Interesting. Um, and I went to Dickie's and Dickie said, well, shit, man, nobody's ever written our story. Why don't you write it? And, you know, at, you know, what was I, 31, 32? And I didn't know enough about writing books to know that I couldn't. So I said, sure, I'll do that. And, uh, <laughs> and then I, like I started doing interviews. In addition to searching uh... stuff out, I'd go to Butch's house and spend four or five days digging through his stuff and talking to him, put everything on tape. And uh, over the course of four years, I did over 300 hours of interviews with these wow. guys. And, uh, wow. you know, they were all broken up. They were not playing together necessarily. And there was no real hope for a future, to be honest with you. And uh, so they were really candid. And, and I'd gotten to know them. We were friends. And it wasn't like a journalist quizzing them on yeah. their history. It was like a friend talking about, you know, mm. how this happened, you know. Yeah. And uh, then I never did the book, put that shit away. Um, and uh, uh, I was, this was when they got back together in 89. Um, and I'd gone out on the road with Greg Allman Band in the 80s and Dickie's great Southern stuff. And then he had a band called BHL and T. Mm -hmm. And I went out on the road with them. Um, and, uh, but when they reformed towards the end of the 80s, um uh I was locked in and uh I had actually worked with Bill Levinson 
in 88 because throughout those years in the 80s where I was gathering material and doing interviews, I also copied everything that I came across. Mm -hmm. And I had like a copy camera and a Xerox machine and, and uh, all kinds of tape recorders. So, you know, I stayed at Nikki's house for a couple of weeks and copied everything he had. Uh, paper, mm -hmm. pictures, and tape that I could. That I couldn't couldn't uh, copy anything larger than uh, quarter inch, half inch tape, real to real stuff. Yeah. I had those kind of machines with me, but the two inch, you know. And and so I gathered all this stuff. And when Levinson and Polygram started to work on a Brothers box set. He had had big success with the Clapton box set, the uh, Crossroads yeah. box set. Hmm. And uh, through politics and business, Polygram ended up with all the master tapes from Capricorn. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bill was looking around and there was no Allman Brothers manager at that time, but my name kept coming up. He'd talk to Steve Mazarski or he'd talk to yeah. so-and-so and they'd say, oh yeah, Kirk's got all that stuff. He knows where that shit is. So uh, I got involved with Bill and we did the Dreams box set. And then in 89, the spring of 89, when uh, they uh, it was a 20th anniversary box. Right. And yeah. so um, yeah. they decided to get together and do a tour just to promote that box set. Well, it, it stuck. You know, they hired Woody and Warren and Johnny Neal yeah. and went out and. Uh, I did the first year, 89, I just did nothing but photography all over the East Coast. Yeah. Didn't go to the West Coast with him, but up and down the East Coast and through the Midwest. And uh, then they went to Florida to do uh, record seven turns. And I went down there and shot all the stuff, album cover, promo stuff, spent the whole month down there while they were recording. Now, was that Burt Reynolds' place, or was that the oh, next no, this one was back where it all begins? This was a criteria. Okay. So everybody yeah. was down there and uh, uh, working with Dowd, and I shot everything. Down here, you know, where I am. It, in the control room, in the recording, yeah, everywhere. Um, and I went out uh, in the spring of 90, then, after the record was recorded. Uh, I go out, and I was just going to shoot pictures for three weeks. And they had hired, uh, they had signed a deal with uh, Danny Goldberg's Gold Mountain Management Company out in L.A. And Danny, uh, they hired a tour manager that was a young guy and the, didn't know the band. The band didn't know him. And he'd been out tour managing with Bang Tango and, you know, Haircut 100 <laughs> and shit like that. And he was young and he thought uh, he was there for about a week of rehearsals. They rehearsed for a a month in Bradenton and shot a video for good and clean and fun and, and all this stuff. And then uh, the, the young man shows up to watch him rehearse. And then we went out on the road and I was just going to shoot pictures for the first leg. And the third day of the tour, uh, Dickie comes to me and says, I, we're going to hire you to be his assistant. I said, what are you <laughs> talking about? I don't, I don't know nothing about tour managing. He said, yeah, but you know how to talk to people. And this son of a bitch, if he talks to me like that one more time, I'm just going to cut his tongue out of his mouth and send him <laughs> on his way. And so he wants us to do something. He'll tell you, you come tell us. 
because he was young and thought if he talked loud, he'd get Dickie and Butch to move a little faster, right? Well, you know, that's how that paid out. So I spent that the rest of that three-week leg uh, telling people what time it was. <laughs> you know, okay, Dickie, let's go. It's time to get on stage. Shit like that. And uh, and so uh, at the end of that leg, I was they were going to get a new guy, and then I was going to come back out and shoot pictures. Well, that new guy was Bert Holman. And he had worked, uh, Bert had worked for uh, John Scher yeah. and had worked with BHLT. So they knew him and he was just working as the tour manager. And so uh, I come back out on this next leg. And uh, after about three days, uh, uh, Bert says, listen, I can't, I, we're, we're in the West Coast. We're going to go into San Francisco and L.A. and. And uh, he says, I can't do this without you. Um, I'll pay you out of my pay if they won't hire you to do that. And uh, so he paid me uh, for two days. And then Dickie found out, said, fuck that. Um, <laughs> and so I signed up and stayed there as the assistant tour manager for another year and a half until they made Bert the manager. They yeah. got rid of Danny Goldberg and that whole team. And they made him the manager. And he stayed out there forever. He's still the manager yeah. of the yeah. business. And after about yeah. a year and a half, I climbed the ladder a little bit. And and I really didn't like the, I didn't like the title assistant anything. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard gig too. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Especially and when you're friends. Pretty... Especially when you're friends with the band. Yeah. And friends with the. You know. You kind of have to like go from being friends and flip a switch and go like, all right, guys, for real, like we got to do this. And then they're like, yeah, yeah you're our friend. You don't, you know, that's well, hard. See, and that, that, that blew up in my face when I started shooting all their album covers, you know, because the first <laughs> I did the seven turns that worked great. And then we did shades of two worlds in Memphis. And, uh, Dickie laid out the, Dickie was the one that had the graphic design in his mind. And we, we worked up this, the cover for seven turns. He said, this is, I mean, one of the coolest things of my whole life. <laughs> We're sitting there at criteria and, uh, uh, Dickie had con conceived that it was going to be seven turns was going to be the name of the record because it was, that was a mystical concept with the N Navajo Indians and with the Zen people and stuff. So, um, seven turns, what are we going to do? You know? And, uh, um, he took me out in the lobby of criteria with an acoustic guitar and he sat down and he said, this is what I'd like the album cover to look like. And he sang me seven turns wow. acoustically in the lobby. He, and he was done. Wow. He said, that's what I want the album cover to look like. <laughs> okay. So I spent two and a half days driving around the swamps of Florida, trying to find a thing that would stay that, you know, and, uh, off alligator alley, we found uh, a little side road next to a canal. And so we all went out there and shot these great pictures, had red dog bailing water out of the canal and there were alligators oh, shit. in there. <laughs> shit. And, <laughs> And so that went well. They loved it. So we go to Memphis the next year, and I took three and a half days of their time to shoot pictures. I oh, shot boy. them in West Memphis, Arkansas. I shot them in all over Memphis. Um, and, you know, I was pretty full of myself, and they let me do it. 
Um, and I've got great pictures. Absolutely the best pictures I probably ever took of the Allman Brothers was the cover shot of uh, Shades. And uh, so the next time they, I shot an album cover, the next uh, they gave me 45 minutes. This <laughs> <laughs> nah. is so great for me because, you know, both the Dead and the Allman Brothers are the absolute worst about <clears throat> photography sessions. Uh -huh. And the complaining and not cooperating makes it take so much longer as exactly as, you know, oh, yeah. but I always wonder like, where did that start? And now I know where <laughs> you had to do it for three days. And now yeah. they're like, yeah, F you, yeah. No, that was exactly it. Now we got that uh, first set, second set in the, in the driveway of the uh, Orpheum in Boston, right? Where it, it, so we pulled the bus right into by the front door, changed the marquee. And everything was set up, lights, everybody. I had the bus drivers doing my, you know, they were at the stand-ins. But I literally had all seven of the guys for 45 minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, oh, man, yeah. too funny. But uh, you know what I love about this is that I could see that the seeds already of you starting the museum. Yeah. Like a lot of yeah. people don't realize, uh, well, some may not realize there is an Allman Brothers Band Museum. Right. But that museum uh, you used to live in, it was your house. And that was the old Allman Brothers Band house back in the day. Yeah. Talk about yeah. how you came to live in that house. Okay. Um, and uh, during the 80s, when I was doing all that traveling around and research and then, you know, um, interviewing and stuff, I came through Macon a number of times. And one time I came through and there was a for sale sign in the front uh, yard of the big house. And uh, I'd never actually been in it. So I just called the realtor number and uh, told him I was interested in buying the house. And this is 1986 seven or 88. And uh, so the house was empty and uh, I photographed every room of the house, every angle of the outside of the house, <laughs> the backyard, everything, and then yeah. just drove off. Right. And uh, <laughs> so that was, that was 80, I think 88 and uh, 87 maybe. So um, I'm out there on the road. We get uh, the, the fall of, 92 uh, was the uh, second GABA Fest. Uh, GABA is the Georgia Almond Brothers Band Association. It's just a, a nonprofit fan club, basically. And uh, uh, the second GABA Fest was held at a hotel in Macon. And we weren't on the road. So a friend of mine who had a minivan, and we loaded it up with bootleg t-shirts and swag that I'd gathered and posters and all kinds of stuff. And we drove down to GABA. And uh, while we were down here in 92, it was October 92, Chank uh, Middleton, Greg's best friend, um, came to me and said, listen, man, I know the folks that live in the big house. You want to take a little walkthrough? And I said, absolutely. So about half a dozen of us gathered up and Chank took us over to the house 
And uh, it was a lovely African-American family that lived there. A um, huh. couple, three kids. She was a, a, an educator and he was a lawyer. And he was a pretty uh, bitter uh, 40, 50 something uh, black dude who had basically uh, been shit on by the old boy network here in Macon. And uh, uh, he bought the house for $8,000, uh, which was basically paid the back taxes for the house. It was uh, sold on the courthouse steps. Wow. Um, and the house was in terrible shape. And he took, the first thing he did was uh, uh, get a second mortgage on it and took that money and invested it with a guy. And they were uh, um, trying to uh, open a little, they bought three Victorian houses that were just down the street on Vineville. And they were going to turn it into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame, which didn't exist mm. at that time. Huh. And his partner was like a, a, a Jewish uh, concert promoter and businessman that moved down from Connecticut. And so the two of them had this great idea and they spent the money and they bought these houses and the whole deal. There was a little amphitheater in the backyard of one of them and widespread played there and the uh, Indigo Girls and a lot of bands like that driving and crying. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, they had this idea and they told the mayor, they told the local uh, congressman about their idea and they, the, they stole the idea. What they did is they stole the idea and said, yeah, the make uh, the Georgia Hall of Fame, Music Hall of Fame needs to be in Macon, but not with these guys' houses. And they moved it downtown. They did a whole, they built a whole new building. And yeah. so uh, Cedric was really upset. You know, he, he gambled yeah. and, and they took it away from him. So he he sat in the back porch, the little back porch of the house. His wife was giving us this tour. It was lovely. And I came home from that little trip and pulled out those proof sheets and, and showed them to Kirsten. Now, Kirsten and I had been married a little over a year at that time. And uh, we were looking to get out of Chicago and do something together. She had a life that didn't blend with mine necessarily and mine with hers. But we were deeply in love and married right away. And uh, so I showed her these proofs. She says, oh, that's it. That's our future. Let's buy that house, go down there and open a rock and roll bed and breakfast. And uh, I said, OK, sounds good. So uh, in January of that year, next year, uh, 93, um, we go down there. And uh, that's when Cedric told me, he said, look, uh, you're going to give me what I want for this house or I'm going to let it fall down around my shoulders because it's a big house and we don't need all these rooms. We'll just close them off. And what he wanted turned out to be twice what the house in its condition appraised for. Oh, and, uh, you know, uh, we said to hell with it. And so uh, through the help of Bill Luckadoo, uh, he oh, hooked us Bill up with it. Oh, yeah. He opened several doors that we needed open. The finance company, yeah. uh, contractors to rebuild. And uh, when we walked down there and told Cedric that we were going to give him his $165,000 for a house that appraised for eighty, dollars uh, he about fell out of his folding chair, you know, because he really <laughs> didn't think 
he said, you know, in, in the negotiation, he said, yeah, this town wants me out of here and wants somebody like you in here. They'll do whatever they can to get me out of here. <laughs> and, you know, I and, and I told his wife, who was absolutely a lovely woman, she says, you're not buying one house. You're buying two houses. You're buying this from us for you. And then you're buying that other one for us because that's and that's what happened. And and I didn't want she said to us that, why don't you just rent a house? Come down here. You'll be able to buy this house off the courthouse steps like we did in another year because we're going <laughs> bankrupt. And I didn't want to do that to these people. And so we yeah. didn't, you know. Yeah. And uh, we That's got awesome. it and, and and spent all our money that we had to renovate it. And uh, that's how we got it. I asked the guys in the band, I said, listen, do you mind if we buy this house and, and kind of turn it into a bed and breakfast? And because that was the goal. Move down here, have three guest rooms, Dwayne's, Barry's and Greg's old bedrooms and use them as a bed yeah. and breakfast. And we were going to call yeah. it Disgraceland and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so so uh, um, they said, no, nah, no, nah, you go ahead and do that. We don't know why you want to live in fucking Macon, but go ahead. You know? <laughs> nah. So, you know, that's, a, that's how it came to be. And then for 14 years, we had a stealth museum. You know, it was like. Yeah, because uh, you used to have people come in from all over the world. Oh yeah! In fourteen Show up years, on your we had doorstep, yeah, and we you would let them in. People. Oh, it was crazy! Yeah, and I was gone a lot because once the mule created themselves in '94 at the big house, they moved in for ten days. They worked all their new music up. They had they played their first real show downtown at uh, the Liz Reed's Music Hall, and uh, mm. so you know. Uh, through those years, I was gone with the brothers, and then during the first couple, three years of the mule, I would get off the brother bus and get on the mule bus, you know? Yeah. And so Kirsten was home all the time, and over the course of those 14 years, we had well over 20,000 people knock on the door. And uh, Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was very cool. And Japanese tourists at <laughs> 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, and we had a whole carload of drunken Polish soccer fans showed up at midnight one night. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but, and I tell you, the, the two rooms that we had set aside as the museum, we call them the archive rooms, uh, and stuff wasn't behind glass, you know, yeah. it was like, there was a satin shirt that Clapton had given Dwayne during Layla, not the, not the one everybody knows, it was like a, a gold and purple tie-dyed satin. And Dwayne had given it to Kim Payne, and Kim Payne gave it to me, and I had it hanging on a hanger. You could put that shirt on. You could touch it. You could, you know, yeah. I had one of Greg's old B3s, you, and, a, and a Leslie, and uh, you could turn that sucker on and play it. And, uh, and all those years, all those years, not one thing was ever stolen. Um, That's amazing. And Kirsten never had an awkward, uncomfortable moment with strangers walking in, and... Uh, I always said, you know, people don't steal from church. You know, they yeah. they're they're pilgrims. They're here to, you know, pay tribute. So, um, yeah. and that's how we got it. And then after a while, Kirsten got tired of answering the door, and uh, <laughs> we, we tried to sell it to a couple uh, wealthy people that loved it, but their wives didn't want to leave Charlottesville, Virginia, and move to Macon, which I can understand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we formed this foundation in 2005, a nonprofit 
charitable uh, uh, foundation. And we started raising money, um, tax deductible donations. And I'd say at least 75% of the money we raised came from New York Wall Street guys. Um, The Beacon uh, Theater runs. Oh, yeah, that whole crew, man. I mean, they... One man individually uh, contributed over a quarter million dollars himself, Mm, you know, and our friend Julie Orland uh, was very, very uh, key in the fundraising efforts. So it took us about uh, three years to raise the money for the foundation to be able to buy the house. And I had uh, my collection of memorabilia was appraised by a, outfit out of new york city that did that for uh collections and rock memorabilia and uh the collection appraised at two million dollars and uh so uh the foundation paid for a quarter of that and we donated the rest of it you know and uh then they bought the house outright and it became it took another year and a half maybe two years to to complete the rebuild of the house and it opened as the as the Allman Brothers Band Museum in December of 09. And then there was the uh, the grand opening in April of 2010. And I'll never forget, O'Teal, you came to our house that day. Yeah, man. Because through, uh, you know, bullshit and aggro and stuff, Kirsten and I were asked, well, we weren't asked, we were told not to show up at the at the ribbon cutting. And uh, you and you and Quinones came to our house that day. Means the world to me to this day. Yeah, man. You know. What you guys did. So anyway, I'm an old man and I get a little sappy sometimes. Hey, man, I, I have on this podcast many times, man. Young man get sappy, too. It's OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of shit that went down and, you know, but after all, when it's all said and done, yeah. which I firmly believed at that time. And Quinones did too. And that was part of why we came, you know, on top of the fact that we love you and we are advocates. We fly the West flag, you know, but I knew <laughs> I was like, you did something that has rarely been done. Like so many of my heroes, so many. There ain't no Miles Davis museum that I know of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, there's not a Duke Ellington museum that I mean, people that should have a museum. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. they're certainly worthy of one. There's and no Grateful Dead that. museum. Yeah, there's no Grateful yeah, Dead. Thought, there's no band. You know, no. Yeah, and I thought this is gonna stand. This is something that you created, and it's so great to hear the organic way that it happened now. Yeah. You yeah. know, because you were just, you just got that collector gene. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I but used I to knew say it was I built stand. A, I built a museum out of dumpster diving. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but what a you know, great one! Like in, the, in out of that dumpster, there's this T-shirt that Clapton gave Dwayne, and uh-huh. a bunch of other like unbelievable. You know, one man oh, yeah. gathers well, what another man spills. You know, and another thing is, you know, like yeah, you you got that appraisal from a New York company, but they can't put a price tag on the memories and on right. the life and on the yeah, experiences that you've the had. Journey. You know? yeah. And I knew all yeah. that was going to outweigh whatever like present political bullshit that was going on. 
and that's how history is and now mm-hmm. look you know what you did that all came around eventually well you know what you Akil? Know? it's like um kirsten took it real hard i obviously took it real hard yeah but i i was able to process it and i said you know um there's a long game in this and and I'm going to outlive the sons of bitches anyway. And, <laughs> you know, mm. and I have. <laughs> so, so, you know, I mean, I'm over there all the time. You know, I'll sit yeah. in a gift shop and tell stories. I, you know, um, yeah. I don't want to be the greeter at the casino, washed up boxer or something, you yeah. know. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I'm proud. I mean, it's become... Uh, the second uh, most uh, visited uh, tourist destination in middle Georgia. Out, the sec- first one is the Indian Mounds, which is beginning to become yeah. a national park. And uh, yeah, but and it's also the, the the big house has was the instigation was the catalyst for the entire community of Macon to fully. Uh, embrace again their musical heritage. Yeah. Um, there is now a uh, Otis Redding Museum. There's a Little Richard Museum. There's a Capricorn <laughs> Records Museum. Yeah. Uh, they they bought and remodeled Grant's Lounge, the Capitol Theater, the H and H. All those things are now part and parcel with the whole community effort to brand this Macon, Georgia, just like Memphis or Muscle Shoals, more more than Muscle Shoals, because Muscle Shoals is just history. But, you know, we get, there's a lot of music tourists down here now, lots of yeah. them. And, mm. you know, Kirsten and I full well know that, uh, you know, we kick that can first. Yeah, absolutely. So it's and worked it's, out. It's like a uh, tree roots. You know what I mean? And I could see mm-hmm. it back then. Now I find out, you know, this whole 20 anniversary uh, project that you were doing with Levinson has really kind of got the band back together. Yeah. <laughs> You've yeah. had a really instrumental part, and that can never be taken back. Like, that is yeah. what it is. That's part yeah. of Allman Brothers history. And now you also have the um, the photography studio also right where you're oh yeah we opened nine years ago it'll be nine years in january that we've been open gallery west um nice and we were just going to do a little pop-up you know we had done those uh we had done those pop-ups during the beacon run the final beacon run in uh march and october of 2014 and uh, we had our little pop-up at the sushi bar across the street in the basement and it was just amazing right Sold a lot of pictures, made a lot of connections. And so we came home from that in October and thought, you know, let's have a little pop-up in Macon. Maybe we can sell some Christmas presents, you know. And we found a space, but it wasn't quite done yet. Um, And it didn't get done until January. So we missed Christmas altogether. (laughs) And we had a... uh, But we've been open nine years in the same spot, and we've sold pictures and books and had other people's photography exhibits and book signings and and concerts and and uh yeah we're because we're part of that little tourism thing too yeah, yeah. gallery west is uh, now we're an event during gaba 
you know, it's all kinds of stuff. Nice. It's it's like, nice. yeah. I, yeah. Love, I love checking out your photos. It's like uh, I, I, me and a buddy were, to, were goofing, off, goofing around about bad headshots, you know, and how <laughs> yeah. even as a baseball card collector as a kid, I never liked the pictures where the player just had like – one knee and his bat on the knee or posing like he's about to pitch. I like the action shots of sliding head first into home and there's dust everywhere. And, uh -huh. you know, and I look at concert photos and I get like immediately like trans trans transposed to that moment. And I think mm -hmm. about like how loud it was, what it smelled like the people around you when you were taking that photo and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. um, I really appreciated how the variety, like you have some shots of Iggy pop where he looks like a caterpillar. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then there's like Mark Knopfler, like who I think is one of the most underrated players ever. And you have him like just appreciating one of his own notes. I feel, you yeah, know, yeah, did you yeah. approach each artist or each uh, gig or whatever the same way? Or did you just like, did you approach each one differently? Like I'm always fascinated with that with photography. I know some people just snap and they, you know, spray and pray kind of, I think they call mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. um, it seems, everything well, seems very, um, you know, methodical with how you did it. Well, here's the deal. Number one, 95% of what I sell was all shot on film. And so uh -huh. you didn't know what you got until the next day when you processed the film and looked at the mag. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And you only had 36 <laughs> shots anytime, you know, yeah. now you can take 10 rolls of film with you, but you didn't have the ability to shoot nonstop. I mean, the motor drives, you still ran out in 36 shots, you know? Right. And yeah. so, um, so I approached it with that kind of thing in mind. You, it's a matter of anticipating. I mean, I got this picture of Bob Marley where all his dreads are like, Oh, it's so know. great, man. And, so great. and you know, that's the shot I was looking for, but I wasn't sure when I went home that I had it. I thought I did, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. Was it in yeah. focus? Yeah. Well, of course it was, but yeah, I approached things. Uh, and to be honest with you, the, it was harder for me to shoot bands that I really liked. Uh, mm than it was that. the people you know like i didn't give a shit about iggy pop or van halen that wasn't my music but right I, so i could be completely objective i could look only mm. at what i'm seeing you know yeah. now if i'm shooting somebody like marshall tucker or delbert mcclinton the music's in me while they're playing it so it's difficult especially <laughs> with the brothers yeah i mean there's a there's a photographer friend of mine um who shot the dead every time she could shoot the dead and uh a lot of others bonnie Raitt and other blues people and stuff but every picture that she sells she says what song they're playing <laughs> how, the fuck, how the fuck do you know that <laughs> you, have, you have an assistant taking notes i mean good lord um and i know she's not a player so you know dickie betts could look at his fingers on his guitar and say well that's what i'm playing you know right, i know that right but, right uh so uh yeah i the the music that really connected with me uh was much more difficult to shoot than music that didn't i mean i have great pictures of 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 uh uh phil collins you know I saw but, those. yeah who gives a shit <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you, got a couple, have, you got a couple little feet 
shots in there that I was just oh, yeah. like, I love Little Feet. Oh, yeah. So. I knew Lowell pretty good. I'll tell you a weird story about Lowell. Uh, it was after he was out, he was doing his Thanks, I'll Eat It Here tour in the spring of 79. And um, he was doing two shows at the Park West, which was, uh, it was an old porn uh, theater that they renovated <laughs> and turned into a high-end nightclub. Nice. Called the Park West. Held about 900 people. And uh, so Lowell came in with his band, solo band, and did two shows early and late. And uh, and I knew Lowell a little bit because we I uh, the waiting for Columbus tour I did a bunch of shooting there and uh, and they even gave me a jacket because I kept wanting to hear Fat Man in the bathtub and uh, so they made me a jacket that spot check Billy it was a it was a killer it was a <laughs> like a high school uh, letter jacket like a varsity right? jacket, varsity yeah. jacket. Yeah, yeah yeah varsity jacket nice right. and, <laughs> spot check uh, so, Billy. So it, so I'm shooting the show and and during uh, between the early and late show I go up to the dressing room and uh, uh, there was a balcony outside the dressing room and the house was dark and they were cleaning up and and uh, setting the tables and shit and uh, so just me and Lowell out there and he says hold out your hand and so I hold my hand out like this he says no 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 like this. Okay, so there is, I don't know what, there's nothing that he's going to put on the top of my hand that's, that, that I'm going to want, you know, mm. it's not like, because <laughs> I was, number one, this is 79, I was four years sober, all right, um, hadn't done drinking, drugs, nothing, and so he, he dumps out a little pile of blow on, on, on oh, my hand boy. right here, and then does his, now here I'm standing, in the dark with a hero he's more of a hero than he is a friend you know yeah, yeah. i mean we're friendly and he's yeah. sharing his blow with me what the fuck am i gonna do i mean am i gonna blow four years of sobriety because i don't want to turn down my hero so what i did i uh quick as a you know i figured it out okay wait till he brings his hands up to snort his I brought my hand up and blew rather than inhale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> way to go. <laughs> you know, and he says, you want another bump? I said, no, nah, man, I'm good, you know. <laughs> well, you know, so we spent the rest of the intermission, you know, uh, hanging out. And I shot some pictures of him. There's a great picture I got of him with a big grinning face, and he's high as a little monkey. And uh, But you know what? Two and a half weeks later, he was dead because that blow – Gave him a heart attack. And, yeah. you know, and so I had that moment. And thank God I made the right call. And, uh, you know, it's those kinds of things just stay with you, you know. And yeah, here and, I yeah. am. And here you carry him down the road with you, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. you've seen I'll a lot of. I just listening to the story of uh, Mark Henry. He was the world's strongest man that ended up. <laughs> in the WWE wrestling and stuff. And um, he didn't get the gold medal in the Olympics. And he later set a lot of records that still have not been beaten to this day. So technically he's still the world's strongest man, but I uh -huh. saw him being interviewed about not getting the gold in the Olympics. And he said, yeah, I didn't get it. He goes, you know, but three out of the four guys that, you know, placed, are all dead now from using those steroids. And I was always mm -hmm. clean 
and mm-hmm. I would rather lose clean than, and you know, so it just takes yeah. some time. You get older and you're like, man, yeah, I, it, you, you just appreciate stuff more. Oh, older. yeah, you really do. That gratitude comes on strong. I'm telling you, Teal, this, you know, the last, uh, well, it's been the last four years. I've had some pretty raggedy health, you know, heart attack, quad bypass, and, and, and hospitalizations for bleeding intestinal issues. And, you know, just COVID three times. Anyway, it was just, yeah. and then I had prostate cancer. It just one thing after another. And I survived it all, right? I'm still standing. I feel really good today, you know? Good, um, good. But it's like, those things put a lot on your mind. You know, you start to, you start to wonder, you know, you start to reflect. I mean, number one, I'm 73. So, uh, and I'm, I guess you could call it retired. I still, you know, sell my pictures and go set up at festivals and stuff like that. And, uh, but I've really started to reflect on the life that I've been able to live and the impact that, other people have had on me and the impact that I have had on other people. Um, I get that a lot at the gallery, you know, when I'm down there, people will show up and tell me stories about how I threw them out of the building. (laughs) I I get a lot of that. I get a lot of, you gave me some great advice. And then the other guy will go, you know, I was on stage at the beacon. You threw me out, you know, (laughs) you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. boss. But, you know, you, you get that notion of how you've impacted the world that you live in. And, uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, here's an interesting little thing. Um, uh, in Labor Day weekend this year, uh, I was inducted into the Iowa State Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, Congratulations. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Oh, I think I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was Labor Day weekend. I drove up there. They had a big ceremony. There was a bunch of people. And, and and you know, there's been some serious players come out of Iowa. Um, and they were all in. And they've been doing this for 25 years. And uh, nice, man. so, you know, and I was uh, in the uh, assistant, uh, associate, uh, I don't know, some kind of category. Um, it was like... Uh, there was a guy that worked sound and another guy was an engineer and then me as a photographer. And, and, uh, and I hadn't lived in Iowa since 1969, you know, I grew up there, <laughs> I hear you. but you know, it was very cool. I'm getting yeah. acknowledgement for the shit that I created along the way and I've impacted and yeah, it's a cool thing, you know? And, uh, yeah, man. Um, so I, I look and say, I have pretty much done the right thing in this little life of mine and you know the day that going back to the big house for a second you know we were kind of written out of the story for a few years and uh and then about four years five years ago maybe um they put a plaque on the on the front porch yeah outlining outlining what we had person and i had done yeah and uh and it was the same night that uh, Haynes was doing an acoustic show in the backyard. So it, oh, was, all, nice. all very, it was all very cool. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's a marathon, cool. huh? Not a sprint, I guess, Amen. is the moral. Yeah, it's exactly right, man. Yeah. It's exactly it. 
the long game. This dude, has bro. been such a cool chat, and we have to have you back one day. Would you come back and tell more? I mean, I feel like we've barely yeah. scratched the surface. Yeah, sure, we didn't yeah. even get the Chicago Blues stuff, which Where I've heard find? so many great stories about that well, stuff. We'll post a link to every places where people could find your art and all of your stuff. But, man, Kirk, thank you so much for, for joining us today. My pleasure, yeah. man. Thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do it. Part two, you know, talk Hell about yeah. Chicago. Talk about well, Chicago we gotta blues. Because the, the country guys and the blues guys, you know, I got to ride on the bus with you and I got to hear all the stories. But this is great <laughs> stuff. You're always in my Hall of Fame, brother. Thank Always. you, brother man. You too. <laughs> I love you, O'Teal. I mean, we have we've traveled some miles together, man. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you were the easiest bass player I ever worked with, to be honest with <laughs> you. Pantheon Media presents Comes a Time featuring Mike Fenoya and O'Teal Burbridge. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Produced and edited by Eric Limarenko and Stu Silverman. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Comes a Time with Mike Fenoya and O'Teal Burbridge. Be sure to follow the pod on social media, YouTube, and if you're jonesing for bonus episodes and exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get on the bus. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.